First Corinthians 13, 6 and 7. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. We're looking at this description of love, uh, which uh, we've divided into 15. If you take the, the next verse, love never fails, you'd have 16 aspects of it. We've been looking at these aspects and we've divided them, perhaps arbitrarily, into three. Uh, we've taken the first three and we've looked at how uh, these have a reference to love's disposition towards others. Uh, it's a disposition to do good to others. Love is kind regardless of whether the others are difficult and require patience or are better than us and so would create our envy. And then the six that we looked at the last time are, we thought, love in relation to oneself. Uh, essentially, they're saying love is humble. We thought of the meekness of Jesus and how Jesus was never boastful, proud, rude, self-seeking, angry, resentful. And then uh, we can think of the last six characteristics that we have in verses 6 and 7 uh, as showing love in relation to uh, outer circumstances we meet which might make us it might make it difficult for us to love as Jesus loves. Uh, evil that might beguile us and fascinate us. Uh, evil that might lead us to become cynical or distrustful of others. Evil that might cause us uh, to give up and despair. Christian love, Paul is saying, is the great overcomer. It leaps over all obstacles in order to love as Jesus loves. Remember, the, the love word here is uh, agape, the, the special word. It's not a word that was invented uh, in the New Testament, but <coughs> a word in which new meaning was infused uh, so that the love uh, that is uh, denoted by this particular word uh, is a love for the unlovely or the undeserving. Uh, it's a love which proceeds from the nature of the person loving rather than the one who's the object of the love. It's the love that Jesus showed for us who are undeserving of that love. And it's in this last section particularly that Christian realism in regard to sin is most conspicuous because as Christians... Uh, we are aware, in a way, that the uh, non-Christian society is, is not uh, so aware that we live uh, in a world which groans under the weight of sin, which is marked by sin. And if we know even the, the slightest part of our own heart, then we know that we are pulled in wrong directions uh, so often. We know that under the surface there lurk the most dreadful possibilities were the seeds of sin uh, to take uh, full flower. Uh, and it's the same with the, the friend 
We seek to love with the spouse, with the fellow minister. We work alongside. It's not going to be easy to continue to love people as Jesus loves when sin rears its ugly head. But, Paul says, this love that I speak of will overcome all these things. True Christian love will see a way through. Now these are beautiful words, aren't they? They, they are, they are so. They, they draw us. When, when we, when we read these words, I, I'm sure, uh, if you're like me, you have someone in mind. I have someone in mind when I read these words. I think of someone uh, who was very uh, influential in my own life, and I'm sure uh, you have someone in mind also. But beyond and above whoever we think of when we think of these descriptors of love there is the lord jesus uh, revealed to us in the scriptures who embodies this love this love that paul speaks of simply brings to life in our imagination the lord jesus christ brings us to him as we find him in the pages of Holy Scripture, and we'll see that as we go through uh, each of these characteristics of love. Begin with the, the first uh, pair, as it were, mentioned in verse 6. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. <coughs> Jonathan Edwards comments, Charity is contrary to everything in the life and practice that is evil and tends to everything that is good. Beautiful, isn't it? Uh, love is drawn to everything that's good in life and actions and is repelled by everything that is evil. Sinful humanity has a a dreadful, a fatal attraction to uh, bad news. It's not true. Evil intrigues us. We're fascinated by it. We read of wickedness, and there is, to some extent, a, a thrill when we read of a type that really arises from being involved vicariously, involved through someone else in what is described. It's, a, it's an awful thought. Think of the, the way that newspapers are sold. Newspapers sell copy uh, by bad news. They don't sell copy by having lots of good news in the front. I used to take the, uh, the Airdrie & Corporate Advertiser regularly. I still take it spasmodically. <laughs> but got to the point where there was just so much dreadful news. Week after week, uh, stories of uh, arson and murder and perversion, and it just became too much. And the editors of, of newspapers acknowledge that uh, they are simply flogging dirt because that is what the market is looking for. That is what people want. That is what sells stories. And so you have some tabloids which will combine a, a kind of better-than-thou, censorious, self-righteous tone 
along with titillating pieces of moral stories about moral failure scattered through the pages in order to solicit a readership because of what uh, the Bible identifies as this thing in us, a sinful people, that's drawn to what is evil and wicked. But Paul says love, the love I speak of, the love with which Jesus loves, the love of Jesus' people, does not delight in evil. Love does not delight in evil. It takes no uh, uh, delight in it. And yet, even as Christians, isn't it true that uh, we, we can see that uh, in ourselves, this kind of magnetic attraction uh, to the downbeat and to the failure side of life. Uh, you have a, a letter from, from somebody uh, perhaps reflecting on their year or their recent experience, uh, a summary of the highs and lows of the last year. You scan the email down past the highs to the lows, you know? There is that, that drawing of the eye to what went wrong, a fascination with trouble and setback. And uh, I don't know if it says anything about German people, but they have a, a particular word for that, Schadenfreude, which is uh, joy in damage, literally, taking a joy in the damage that others have uh, encountered. It's really sad, isn't it, that that should be the case, that we should be drawn to people's mishaps. The Bible calls it delighting in evil. And it's especially ugly in the Christian community. Uh, love takes no delight in hearing other Christians are struggling. And yet, how sneakily a sense of satisfaction enters when you hear someone is struggling with whom you have perhaps disagreed in the past. Love does not delight in evil. But the other side is, the positive side is, love rejoices with the truth. Rejoices with the truth. Agape love, uh, Paul saying, is the cheerleader for the triumph of good, no matter in whose colors the truth triumphs. Love does not have a party spirit. It rejoices when people come to Christ, to the church, in the church down the road, as much as when people come to Christ in one's own fellowship. Love rejoices when uh, an act of parliament which promotes Christian values is passed by a government, regardless of the colour of the party that passes the legislation. Because love always rejoices with the truth. Love can look past dress codes and rough speech and mistake and ignorance to rejoice with a young person who has come to place their faith in the Lord Jesus. Love sees past all of these things and learns to sing and to dance with the angels in heaven because love always rejoices with the truth, rejoices with the victory of the truth, no matter how that truth is dressed. 
And Jesus' enemies were always ready to rejoice with evil. They were always keen to catch out our Lord. They were censorious. They were focusing on any uh, perceived breach you know, of their own etiquette. They had this very strict idea about who you should associate with and who you shouldn't associate with. And you certainly didn't associate with people who were tax collectors because they were on the side of the Romans and known for being dishonest. And there were uh, various other people, uh, uh, people who were perhaps known to be uh, immoral, uh, moral women, perhaps women of the street, and so on. And so you had this category of tax collectors and sinners, and you kept well away from them. And so when Jesus reached out to Zacchaeus, he got a predictable reaction from the crowd. He's traveling into Jericho, and he noticed a small red-faced man perched up a sycamore tree because there was a crowd and he couldn't see. And Jesus spotted him and said, Zacchaeus, come down, I'm coming to have my tea with you. And Zacchaeus is delighted, he's chuffed to bits, he comes down the tree as fast as he can. And all the time there is this muttering, muttering, he's going to eat with the sinner, he's going to eat with the tax collector. People uh, were rejoicing with evil. They had caught the Lord out and they were pleased with it. That's what they had fastened on to. What did the Lord Jesus fasten on to? Fastened on to the fact that this poor man, uh, despised by all his neighbours, had come to trust in himself. Jesus' summary of what is happening. Today, salvation has come to this house, for this man too is a son of of Abraham. Love rejoices with the truth, takes no delight in evil or the dark side. And that's why gossip uh, is an evil, because gossip is essentially uh, as taking delight in bad stuff to the extent that we want to pass it on to somebody else. And in the church, we need especially to be careful that we don't engage in that kind of activity and that kind of attitude under the guise of prayer, passing on for prayer things which are, are bad, someone's uh, difficulties or embarrassments in which we take a strange delight. Because love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects. Love always protects. There's a translation judgment call at this point. The NIV plumps for protect. Uh, the King James Version and the ESV and some others uh, goes for bears all things. And there's a word, the word is stego, which uh, usually has the meaning of covering something. And so here, cover in the sense of covering something from the gaze of someone uh, who would be offended. But the word also came to be used in the sense of enduring or bearing up. And some of the translations go for bearing all things because that would be uh, the way that Paul has used it elsewhere. 
the NIV have gone for cover, hence protect, because uh, it would seem to duplicate what Paul is saying, because Paul finishes by saying love perseveres, love bears up, and so on. And so the NIV have gone for the option cover or protect. Love always protects. I think that's the right way uh, that they've chosen. Love always protects. And it's true, love will protect another whenever it's possible by covering him, covering her, from the gaze of others. Love protects people from misunderstanding. Love protects people from the uninformed comments that people are inclined to make, uh, which would make it harder for that person's recovery. Now, doesn't cover in the sense of a cover-up. Paul's not saying that love protects in the sense of shoving stuff under the carpet. Doesn't mean that love avoids the confrontation that is involved with admonishing one another and rebuking one another and confessing our sins to one another. Uh, these are activities which uh, we are to do in the church and are to be done in love because we have to deal with sin but love always protects as Lewis Meads writes love knows when to keep its mouth shut love knows when to keep its mouth shut so for example there are times when uh, in a kirk session or a presbytery elders have to engage in one of the sorriest of duties, they have to engage in some disciplinary action, and they do it with a heavy heart. But those cases are always done in private, and the reason for that is that it is to protect, because love protects. Love protects the cause of Christ from open shame. Love seeks the restoration of the offender giving time to heal. Uh, love, if you like, love is like an elastoplast. You know, it covers over the cut. It protects by covering to give the cut, to give the sore opportunity to heal. Because it cares, it wants restoration. Love protects. David might have found satisfaction in the fact that uh, King Saul, who had made his life an absolute misery, uh, well long after the time that David had been anointed as future king of Israel, and Saul is hounding him all around the country, and then at the end uh, Saul uh, is defeated by the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. Not only Saul, but uh, his son Jonathan, uh, David's friend. And straight away, David mourns rather than rejoices. And it's interesting that his instinctive, his automatic fear is that news of the, the defeat of Israel and the defeat of Israel's king, God's anointed, Saul, would be noised abroad. And we have that, that famous cry from the heart, Tell it not in Gath! Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad and the daughters of the uncircumcised 
rejoice. You know, friends, that should be the cry of our hearts as well when we, when we see or we know of a soldier of Christ falling or stumbling. That should be the instinctive cry. Oh, tell it not in Gath. Let not the enemies of Christ's cause get to hear about this, lest they gloat and rejoice over the Lord and his people. Because love protects. Love protects. In the family of the Free Church, we've had a share of, of such shock and sorrow over moral failure. And you know, there was such a contrast between, on the one hand, the salacious delight of the press and the quiet dignity of uh, the, the church leaders who absorbed the shame and took the disciplinary action that was needed with a minimum amount of publicity. Because love protects Love always trusts. Love always trusts. The word here is the, the word uh, to have faith or to believe. Uh, and it's interesting, and uh, Edwards points this out, that we've got love, faith, and hope uh, mentioned uh, here. It would, however, be incongruous to think of the believing or the trusting that Paul speaks of to refer to faith in God, uh, because the context throughout these verses is, is love in relation to people, to our neighbour. And, and so it seems to me Paul's speaking of a tendency that love has to place trust in another wherever possible. In other words, love is the opposite of being cynical. Love, writes Leon Morris, one of the commentators, love is always ready to allow for circumstances and to see the best in others. Love is not naive. Love is realistic. But where it's reasonable to think well of somebody, then love will take that path rather than the other. Rather than assume the worst about someone, rather than make negative conclusions about their secret motives, love always trusts. And there's something, again, that draws us in there. There's something lovely. There's something admirable. There's something drawing in that. The cynical person basically refuses to believe anything at all, uh, good but always suspects the worst about other people when he sees people doing something selfless always assumes that there is an ulterior motive behind things the cynic prides himself in being streetwise the cynic holds back from uh, taking the risk of being hurt or having someone take advantage of them but the person who shows agape love the person who always trusts makes himself or makes herself vulnerable towards someone by loving someone who is undeserving of love. Makes himself vulnerable because they are ready to believe in other people. Smeads again writes, love is a believing power, an impulse that moves us to trust people. Love always trusts and again, we, we think of Jesus. We think, 
Where do we see this in the life of Jesus? Well, we see Jesus always uh, displaying love in all its colors. Uh, think, for example, of the time when the rich young ruler came to the Lord. Uh, when Jesus, uh, he, he comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus, what must I do to uh, have eternal life? And Jesus reminds him of the commandments. And, of course, Jesus is... Uh, challenging him to, to think uh, deeply about the extent to which uh, he has uh, matched up to God's standard. And the man replies uh, with youthful naivety, perhaps, all these I have kept since my youth. And the cynic would have been scornful of the man's claim. And uh, the Lord himself, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, had taught how the commandments entered deep into the heart and they are more than uh, simply keeping the law superficially. But what we read is that uh, Mark tells us Jesus uh, looked, on, looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus saw that there was something admirable in the zeal of this young man. I've always trust. Think of Jesus' relationship, the remarkable relationship with Judas Iscariot. Think of the fact that Jesus, our Lord, knew all along that Judas would betray him. And yet Jesus gives to Judas a position of intimacy. Uh, he's able to come uh, to the Lord. He's part of the, the inner circle of the twelve. Uh, and beyond that, he's given the responsibility of being the treasurer. And right up to the end, uh, in the, the strange tension between predestination and uh, individual responsibility, the Lord is pleading with him, is warning him, right up to the very end. In the fellowship of God's people, uh, we trust one another because that's what love does. We make ourselves vulnerable through believing the best of people, looking at their best side whenever we can. And if we don't, and if our instinctive, our normal reaction is to be cynical and suspicious, then we should ask ourselves, why is it? Why, why do I think like that? Why am I not reflecting agape, love? Because love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always hopes. Hope, like agape love, is a peculiarly Christian virtue. It's characteristic of the, the believer, of the of the, the born-again person, that we have hope. Because the non-Christian doesn't have hope in the sense that we're speaking of hope. Paul, uh, speaking of unbelievers in Ephesians 2 verse 12, says that they are without hope and without God in the world. But the Christian has hope. And the Christian's hope is not a, an airy-fairy, unrealistic uh, hope that things will turn out okay in the end, but it's a solid confidence in the ultimate triumph of God. It's a hope that rises from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a victory that Jesus promised to his followers, 
a victory that seemed utterly unlikely until on Easter morning the Lord appears in a glorious new body to his followers. And Christian hope believes that God will work out his plan of salvation until that day when he comes back again, Jesus comes back again, and all things are made new. That is our hope, and we look forward to that hope. And we believe that God's plan of salvation is something which is unstoppable and will work itself out in surprising ways until that day of glory. And as far as love is concerned, there are no hopeless cases because no one is beyond the transforming power of God's love. This quality of love, this fact that love always hopes was one reason why Paul didn't give up on the Corinthians. I'm sure plenty of ministers would have been tempted to give up on the Corinthian church, would have been only too glad to have washed their hands and walked off uh, away from Corinth because they were a crazy bunch of people. They really were. Uh, they had all the, the gifts, they had all so many things going for them, and yet they were all at one another's throats, falling out over the stupidest of things, dividing into parties, making really life really difficult for, for Paul, turning against him when he had poured himself out for them. But uh, love hopes. And so 2 Corinthians 1 verse 7, Paul writing of the Corinthians itself says, our hope for you is firm. Love always hopes. This is the love with which Jesus loved his disciples. A love that saw their unbelief and their failure only too clearly, and but refused to believe that they could not carry out his purposes. And this love that always hopes is shown by our Lord in a wonderful way at the very end of his life on earth, when he is giving the, the great commission to the disciples. We have this beautiful example of, of a love that always hopes manifested in his confidence in them. Uh, you remember, uh, Jesus calls his, his disciples to him on the mount, and we have this incredible verse uh, in uh, Matthew 28, when we're told, and they worshipped him, but some doubted. And I can never get over that. How, how could that be? How could they see Jesus raised from the dead? How could they witness so many examples of the fact that he was alive, that he had kept his promise and so on? How could they doubt at the very last stage when everyone around them is worshipping? How come some of them are doubting? But there they were. And it's to this group of people, the doubters, and the Simon Peters, the deniers, and the deserters, that Jesus gives the Great Commission. Go into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you. Love always hopes, and love's hope triumphed in the sending out of the disciples. Love refuses to take failure as final. Love refuses to believe in hopeless cases. Love keeps loving despite failure. 
So we ask ourselves, is there someone in my circle? Is there someone in your circle, in your family circle, or in your circle of, of friends, someone who perhaps once walked with you in the Christian path who no longer walks with you? Is there someone for whom you've given up hope? And if there is, when were you given permission to give up on that person? Because love always hopes. Whenever we give up hope, it is really a failure to love because love always hopes. And then finally, love perseveres. Love perseveres. Now, we were saying to the young people, this is love under fire. This is not a, a passive characteristic. This is not a stiff upper lip, just clinging on, doing nothing, hoping things will improve. This is the fortitude of love. This is love that goes on loving in the face of horrendous opposition. This is the love that Jesus showed when he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Calvary love is persevering love. It was the love that enabled Jesus to endure in Gethsemane when Satan was seeking to divert him from his course. It was love that enabled him to go meekly with his betrayers. Uh, it was love that enabled him to heal uh, the servant of the priest. Remember that, that, uh, that uh, Malchus's uh, servant whose ear Peter had struck off in the midst of all his concerns for himself. It was love that enabled him to go with dignity before his oppressors when the Roman soldiers spat on him and bloodied his face and mocked him. It was love that held him to the cross when he was spread-eagled naked on the cross and the people mocked him and watched him gasping for air. It was love that caused him to pray for his oppressors Love that caused him to comfort a dying thief. Love that enabled him to bear the shame of a world of sinners. Love that persevered to the very end. And the writer to the Hebrews exhorts us to consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you might not lose heart. Because love can lose heart, but the love that we speak of perseveres. Some of you will have read uh, Richard Wurmbrand's uh, stories. Richard Wurmbrand uh, converted when Romania was under uh, communist rule and active as a preacher when the communists were fiercely opposing uh, the, the spreading of the gospel, ended up with many other Christians in prison, <coughs> endured terrible suffering. Uh, he says he was so weak, so drugged up by his... Uh, uh, his, his foes, that uh, even in prison, uh, he found it too much of an effort to remember the words of the Lord's Prayer. He writes, I have seen Christians in communist prisons with 50 pounds of chains on their feet, tortured with red-hot iron pokers, in whose throats spoonfuls of salt had been forced, 
being kept afterwards without water, starved, whipped, suffering from cold, and praying with fervor for the communists. This is humanly inexplicable. It is the love of Christ which was shed into our hearts. Love overcame the torture of the communists. And the question again comes home to us. Am I loving with enduring love, with a love that has fortitude, with a love that perseveres? Am I loving when times are difficult? Uh, In our marriages, there are times when it is difficult to commit uh, to the covenant bonds we have committed to. Love perseveres. Love uh, overcomes discouragements. Are you tempted to give up on a difficult neighbor, on a friend uh, who has perhaps let you down or shown uh, discouragement to you? Love keeps going under discouragement, overcomes every kind of opposition. Love always perseveres. These have been wonderful words, haven't they? Wonderful and utterly challenging words. Uh, you, You study them and you wonder, could you ever read them again in a wedding service? when they're supposed to be so kind of uh, uplifting and nice. They're so incredibly humbling. We've seen so many respects, I've seen so many respects in which I fall short and I'm called to consider and follow Jesus and how he loved. What about as, as a church, as a fellowship? I suggested it is a challenge to put our own name in place of love when we read through the verses. But what if we were to put the name of our church in place of the word love? Would it sound incongruous if we did that? Hope church is patient. Hope church is kind, does not envy, does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. Hope Church does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. May it be so. May God bless to us the preaching of his word. Love divine, love divine, all loves excelling. Joy of heaven, to earth come down, fix in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crown. Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure, unbounded love, thou art. Visit us with thy salvation, enter every trembling heart.